Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. So glad that you joined us. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15. Let's go ahead and pray and jump into the Word of God today. Father, we thank you today for your Word, and we look forward to opening it knowing that through your Word you give us instruction and encouragement. You help us to know who you are, who we are, what your will is, how we are to live our lives. Lord, we pray today would be no exception. Holy Spirit, would you teach us, would you instruct us, would you inspire us, motivate us to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus? We love you, Lord, and I pray that you would bless everyone that is tuning in right now. We pray that this live stream, this broadcast would go far and wide, touching hearts and lives of those that need to know you and know your word. I thank you for Northwest Church. Would you bless everyone, every man, woman, and child, so that we would walk with you and that we would walk together in these days. We love you, Lord, and we look forward to another day to glorify you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're going through the book of Mark. We're in chapter 15. I'm going to begin in verse 1, as I normally do. We will not get through the entire crucifixion and burial of Jesus. We will get through most of it, and I will sum up the rest at the end. So let's go ahead and read at least through verse 21, and we'll go from there. Mark 15, verse 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, or Sanhedrin, immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom they call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Some translations say flogged. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him and they took the purple robe off him and put, on his own, put his own garments on him, they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. We'll just keep going here. Then they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. 
And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him, that's 9 a.m., and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews, and they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Hey, ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who, crucified, who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, 12 p.m., darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and I'm saying this the best I can, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, but there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then begins the story of his burial. There is a lot going on here, but let me go ahead and just by way of introduction, remind you of what we read about here in chapter 14. We talked about the last Passover, Jesus praying at Gethsemane, the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus. He was accused uh, before the Sanhedrin, and then we read, of course, about Peter's denials. We enter into this picture in chapter 15, where it says, verse 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. Now, this is interesting for us to note because they had, over the in the middle of the night, they had accused Jesus and rendered verdicts, so to speak. So by the time that 6 a.m. rolls around, basically, they had already decided that they were taking him to Pilate. This wasn't a legal counsel that they put together. They did it in the middle of the night where they brought forth accusers and the other gospel accounts fill in different places. They did this in the middle of the night, even though it was illegal because they didn't want anybody to be able to dispute what, was being, what he was being accused of and those that were accusing him. And so we know this is what took place. It was an illegal counsel. And so now early in the morning, they hold a consultation and they bind Jesus and then, then they deliver him to Pilate, which means nobody got to, this was sort of a closed door session. Um, and that is not the way that you're supposed to do things. In John chapter 18 and verse 30, it records that all the Jewish leaders demand that Pilate simply agree to the death sentence as we look at verse 2. And, uh, and so they pressed Pilate. They wanted Rome to do their dirty work for them, um, and so they brought him to Pilate and uh, pressured him, but Pilate began to ask questions. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, it is as you say. 
So from other gospel accounts, what we know is that the Sanhedrin or the chief priest tried to pressure Pilate and bring him the accusation that this man claims that he's a king. Why would that be a big deal? That would be a big deal because if somebody were to claim that they were a king and have such a following, it would be a threat to Rome. It would be a threat to Caesar. And so this is punishable by death. If they can successfully accuse him of this before Pilate, Pilate has no choice but to crucify him. So this is the accusation that they're bringing. They don't want uh, Pilate to ask any questions. They just want him to go ahead and kill him. And so Pilate begins to ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. So Jesus is not confirming nor denying anything. He's just rolling with what is happening here. So the chief priests begin to accuse him harshly before Pilate. They bring forth the same accusers that were probably in their closed session in order to convince Pilate and and make it a done deal. Um, But this doesn't really help Pilate's conundrum, and we see that in verse 4. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus had no further answer. And I think it's really important to remember that Isaiah chapter 53 talks about he, the suffering servant, the Messiah, was like a sheep led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. First Peter, I believe it's chapter 3 or 4, it says that though he was reviled and insulted, we could say accused, he did not revile or insult in return. He allowed this to happen. Pilate, it says here in this verse, was amazed. Why was he amazed? Pilate, as the governor, he's sitting in the seat of judgment where he can render the final verdict, he always hears people that are accused try to acquit themselves, try to say, I did not do this. These guys are wrong. They give a case for themselves. And here we have Jesus, and he doesn't make a case for himself at all. Pilate is amazed because he can't believe why Jesus, in the position that he's in, um, try to make a case for himself. He doesn't do anything. And so it makes Pilate feel like something's amiss here. It's like something's wrong. Because obviously there there was. Verse 5, Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate um, was amazed. This is what it says here in verse 5. Verse 6, now at the feast he was used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. According to John 18.40 and Luke 23.18-19, we know that Barabbas Um, was somehow involved in an anti-Roman insurrection, which is always punishable by death. Insurrection was quite common in the days of Jesus, which is in part what led to the revolt of AD 67 and 70. You might remember that I let you know maybe a few days ago how there was um, constant revolts that were happening. We have the zealots who are trying to overthrow Roman power, Um, These are Jewish people who just believe that Rome shouldn't be in power, so they're willing to, at whatever whatever cost, try to overthrow power. And they would use, you know, they would murder in order to get their, uh, in order to do what they wanted to. And this they thought, whatever, whatever the cost, it was necessary in order to reclaim their rightful place. And so insurrections and revolts would happen. Rome got sick of this, basically. They got sick of this, uh, the constant battle with Jews. And again, there were different sects of Jews, different, um, different groups among the Jews. Some had nothing to do with this. But because they got tired of it in, in 66 to 70 AD, there was therefore a revolt. And uh, by 70 AD, they had basically killed a million Jews. And, um, and 
and they had torn down the temple as a, as a response to these insurrections and uh, these revolts that were happening. So Rome made a statement, pretty serious statement, to the Jewish people. And so what you have here is this man, Barabbas, and there's this custom that once a year, uh, Pilate would let go of one of their prisoners as sort of a compassion and uh, kind of a gesture to, to the Jewish people. And, uh, but this is not something that uh, the chief priests were going to allow for Jesus and so that's why it mentions Barabbas, because it's really going to be Jesus or Barabbas, as we know. The crowd went up and began asking him to do this. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Uh, for he was aware that the chief priest handed him over because of envy. So Pilate could tell that the reason that they handed Jesus over was because they were envious of his following, they were envious of his ministry, and every accusation that they had was a straw man argument against them. Pilate could see through it. And so he's in a conundrum because he doesn't want to accuse an innocent man. He doesn't care that much, but uh, he just doesn't want any type of uh, blowback that would come as a result of him doing this, right? So here he's pressured um, to make this decision right here and now, but he doesn't know what could come as a result of this. Could his followers you know, lead some kind of uprising? So he's just in this position where um, he doesn't really care about Jesus, but he certainly is trying to govern the people in a way where it's gonna, he's going to mitigate the losses to, uh, in a way that would hopefully be in his favor and the favor of Rome. And so um, he was aware of their jealousy. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted, Crucify him. This bloodthirsty crowd probably had nothing to do with Jesus. They just were stirred up, crucify him, crucify him. I think there were people in the crowd that had no idea what was going on. They were just stirred up by the chief priests. That's what the, mob, the power of the mob can do. The power of the, the, uh, the mob, I mean, it can draw other people into saying things they don't mean, doing things they don't mean to do. And so this, you can hear this, this taunting, this chanting of this bloodthirsty mob, crucify him. And so Pilate hands him over to be scourged or to be flogged is what it says here in verse uh, 14 and 15. And this is what happens basically as we begin to read verse 16 through 21. They took Jesus into the praetorium, which was the governor's official residence located in their fortress, most likely. And they gathered, it says, the whole Roman cohort, or at least those who were on duty, maybe 600 people, maybe a few less. But they've got all of these Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers be, just begin to go to town. It's unbelievable. They dress him up in a purple robe, which could have been what the Roman soldiers wore, which was probably scarlet, but became purple over long-time use. Um, but it wasn't like they had some royal robe that they put on him. They just put on him something to, as a peer as though it was this royal robe mocking him, sort of the king of the Jews. And they dressed him up, and they begin to say, oh, hey, say, Hail, King of the Jews, which was, of course, um, a parody of Hail, King Caesar. Hail, Caesar. Caesar is Lord. This is what they would say. And so it's just this mockery. Um, it says that they would bow before him. They were spitting on him instead of kissing his hand kneeling and bowing, and they kept beating him with a reed. This is what they did to him. They put on him a crown of thorns. Um, obviously, we've 
read various accounts. You've probably heard this. The thorns went into his head. As they began to beat him, the thorns would go even further into his skull. Um, it's, I mean, when they flog him, we know that it doesn't give us the full account here, but uh, they have a cat of nine tails, which is a this handle with leather strips on the end of it. They would put pieces of bone. Um, they would put pieces of lead. According to Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Jews wanted to limit this, how many stripes they would get. So they, they would require 39 and not 40 because it was considered inhumane to do 40. And so Jesus got 39 stripes with this serious weapon and it just rips the flesh off of your back and anywhere else that it would tear at. And so Jesus, um, his back was mangled. It goes all the way down to bone. Um, very much possible to bleed out just from this alone. And it's very clear that the Roman soldiers had no mercy whatsoever, and they just beat Jesus. Um, they caused him great pain, caused him to bleed. And it's surprising, honestly, that he could even walk. But uh, they force him to carry his cross. He can't. And so then we read here in verse 21, they press into, a, uh, into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And this is an interesting note because Mark is the only gospel that actually notes the father of Alexander and Rufus. And that, to me, as you study it, could mean that he was somebody that was known. Why else would the names of his kids be mentioned? And so we don't exactly know why, but that is a good assumption when we read verse 21. Verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. We don't really know why it was called the place of the skull. There's two different versions of why people think that it is. Some people think because many were killed there, and uh, others think because it looked like a skull. I've heard both uh, taught. I don't actually know, and I'm not convinced of either, but uh, both of those are probably uh, good assumptions. So we'll just go with, with what we have. They crucified him, or I'm sorry, verse 23, they, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is an important point because um, sometimes we look at this as a gesture of compassion. I don't believe the soldiers had compassion. Obviously, look at what they did to Jesus. Uh, they darn near killed him at this point. They crucified him, and now they're showing compassion? No, they're not showing compassion. What they're doing is they, they've crucified thousands of people, and they know what it's like for somebody to bleed out on a cross. So they give somebody wine mixed with myrrh as sort of a numbing property so that the person wouldn't struggle so much. And I hate to provide that picture for you, but that's exactly what it would look like. When they crucified somebody, they were naked. I know we have this picture of, of Jesus with a loincloth. He didn't have a loincloth. It says they cast lots for his clothes because the Roman soldiers were entitled to the clothes or any of the personal belongings, and they looked forward to that. They would take something from, they would take everything from these people, and these who they crucified were naked on the cross, bleeding out. So they would give them sometimes wine and myrrh or a mixture of, of sorts in order to numb this person a little bit so they wouldn't struggle so much because they didn't want that to continue. They just, they wanted to go about their day and just let the person bleed out. So it's not a compassion, compa some kind of compassion. It's not some kind of gesture of goodwill towards uh, Jesus. 
Um, they didn't care if he suffered. That's very clear from what they've already done to him. They almost killed him already, so we have to keep that in mind. They crucified him, divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots to decide what each person uh, would take. Now remember, that's, I believe it's Psalm, I want to say it's Psalm 18, um, where it talks about they cast uh, lots for his garments, uh, but I can't quite remember right now, but that's exactly what they did. They, they, um, as they divided up his garments, it is a fulfillment of a scripture, um, and there are other passages that are being fulfilled, like Isaiah 56, uh, sorry, 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. I mean, obviously, we've seen this already. There are many passages that are coming to pass in the crucifixion of Christ and the way that he was treated. And it says here in the third hour when they crucified him, the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. Uh, interesting point, when they crucified somebody, a couple things that we have to remember. Number one is when they crucified somebody, they weren't really high up off the ground. I know there's this picture that we have when we watch various movies or when we think in our mind that Jesus was sort of high and lifted up. Um, that's not true. They usually weren't that far off the ground. People could touch them. People could walk right up to them and, and, and be able to dialogue them, with them if that were possible. But they were not far off the ground. They, they didn't make a... a uh, they didn't try to make that the case. Um, they Rome wanted this to be explicit. They wanted this to be touchable. They wanted this to be very clear. It was a statement to everybody that would see something like this. It was out in the open. It was public shame and humiliation. Rome wanted to teach everyone a lesson by every cru crucifixion. This is what happens when you cross Rome. Jesus was not far off the ground when they crucified him, and he's bleeding out. And so... Um, as that's the case, people are walking by, and it says in, in an inscription, a piece of wood that's nailed above his head, the king of the Jews. They would always take a piece of wood or a placard of some kind, and they would inscribe the crime of the criminal, and they would nail it above their head. In other words, this is what happens when you steal. This is what happens to the insurrectionists. This is what happens. So for him, it was the king of the Jews, and it was written in all three languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew so that everybody could see this. In another gospel account, it says that the chief priest urged Pontius Pilate to put something else as his crime, and he didn't because he couldn't find anything wrong with them. And so he had this inscribed, and they put it up. They were angry about that, but Pontius Pilate just is said it was what it was. In verse 27, they crucified two robbers with them, and we know the other Gospels fill in some of what is what happens with those two robbers, but at first we know they did insult him, at least uh, both of them, and then one of them changes. We know that from the other gospel account. One in his right, one in his left, and the scriptures were fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They're recalling his own words, which of course they misunderstood. Jesus did in fact say that. Um, they, they had no clue what he was talking about. Save yourself, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes were mocking him. So imagine all these people were there. The chief priests are there, the Roman soldiers are there, the scribes, there's onlookers that are there. He's publicly open, openly being humiliated, crucified, mocked, ridiculed, and this goes on for quite a while. 
Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. I, I just had this picture in my mind when I'm reading this, and it's just terrible. But Jesus, in his final hours, I mean, this, he, it's, he dies within hours of this. In his final hours, he's receiving insults and mockery from the very people that he was dying for. I don't know if that hits you right now, but um, sometimes we get used to the story and we don't think through like how potent it really is, how powerful it really is. I mean, we know that the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of eternal life, it's so powerful. We've received that as Christians, but this is what he had to go through. It wasn't just death. It was excruciating. And at, at the hands of the ones that he was giving his life for, human beings. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? He, he loved people. This was the extent to which the Father's love would go. The Son of God's love would go for us. And he's just receiving, absorbing our sin until the very last moment that he would take a breath. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and, and lest we say that we weren't there... I think it's a prophetic picture that you have both Jew and Gentile right there. You've got the chief priests representing the Jewish people, um, and you've got the Roman soldiers as well representing Gentiles. You have Jews and Gentiles right there at Jesus' death. Lest anybody say that it's Jews or it's Gentiles. It's both. Both Jew and Gentile crucified Jesus, and both Jew and Gentile need to receive the forgiveness of Jesus for which he was crucified. This is so important for that we see this and realize that in the last hours of his life, he was still being sinned against by humanity. And yet he didn't say anything. And he finally said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders heard it and they began saying, behold, is he calling for Elijah? Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put on it a reed and gave him a drink saying, let's... Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And we know from other gospel accounts, he says, It is finished. His work here is accomplished on behalf of us and according to the Father's will. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, physically speaking, that's impossible. So supernatural, it's like a, like a lightning bolt just tore the, the veil in two. The centurion who was standing right in front of him saw this when he breathed his last, said, truly this man was the Son of God. And there were several there, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of uh, James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. He was in Galilee. Uh, when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him. And so we have all these people that were there witnessing this. This very powerful moment, Jesus' last breath, he went the full, to the full extent that he needed to in order to bring us back. Our redemption, our forgiveness, Jesus was willing to give everything. He gave everything. He gave everything for us. I, I could continue to go on. We know that three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Praise God. And uh, we preach about that every Easter, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope of eternal life. That is what the apostles preach. They preach the resurrection of Jesus. We believe in a resurrected man more than a man. He was the eternal son of God. And what's important for us to remember is Jesus did all of this that we just read about and the other gospel accounts fill in the other details. He did all of this with all of us in mind. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 3. It says, 
that how great the Father's love is for us, right? That He would um, call us sons and daughters. How great the Father's love is. How great is it? It's so great that He would do anything that was necessary. He took death in our place to be the propitiation for our sins. This atonement that occurred right here, this blood sacrifice, His blood was precious. In fact, His blood is the only blood that is precious. It was not the blood of a mere man. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was and is and will always be the eternal Son of God. He was and is and is to come. His blood was not the blood of a mere man. The blood that was shed, they did not understand what was happening. Those that did this to him, those that were around watching what was happening to him, even his own disciples did not fully comprehend, in my opinion, who he truly was and what was happening. And we see in the book of Revelation an unveiling I'm looking forward to opening that up, but this the book of Revelation, the whole concept of revelation is that it is unveiled now that that which was disclosed. What's unveiled? The glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus is unveiled. It was he was veiled before. This was this was where he was veiled. Why? Because he gave his life to us. He seemed as a human being, but he was God and he was man. He was God and He was man, the Son of Man and the Son of God at the same time. And, um, but the time will come when we will all see the glory of King Jesus. They couldn't see the glory of the one that they were crucifying, but we know who He really is. And as a result of that, we give our lives. This is to the, what extent that he, go, he went and He has gone for us because of His love for us. He loves us so deeply, so dearly. The value that He places on our life is so immense. It's so tremendous. It's incomprehensible. You and I cannot, we, we cannot fully understand the love of God in Christ Jesus. What we do know is that we must give Him our life. The things that I think about when I read the story of His crucifixion is what I am living for is worth what Christ died for. And it's the reminder that you and I have a life in this earth to live for the glory of God. Christianity is not about potlucks and raffles. Christianity is not about um, just claiming forgiveness for when we sin and looking forward to heaven when we die. Christianity is about giving our entire life to the one that gave his life for us in our place. Now we live for him to the glory of God the Father so that we might produce fruit that remains. Be reminded of this today. Let us be reminded that Jesus gave his life willingly and effectively that those who believe upon Him would not only have eternal life, but they would have new life from the moment they say yes to Him and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. He gave all of Himself so that all of us could be given back to Him. And in right relationship with Him, you and I can now live the life that we were created for, destined for, purposed for. And we cannot keep it distracted by other things in this life. We see that Jesus came, He had a mission, He had a purpose, He had a focus, and He accomplished that. Now He sends us into the world with this message. And He says, go and tell everyone. Go and tell everyone the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus gave His life to accomplish this on our behalf. We are thankful. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is the love that God has for us today. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that He would call us children of God. If we believe upon Jesus, we are children of God because of His death, His burial, and His resurrection and our faith in His finished work for us. Friends, it's not about how we behave. It's about what we believe. Do we believe that Jesus 
was the Son of God? Do we believe that He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins? Do we believe that He rose again so in order to secure eternal life for each one of us? It shows us the promise of eternal life. His resurrection is a prophecy of our resurrection and our faith in Him. And so we thank God today for all that He has done, and we are grateful for what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I just want to pray into the gratitude Number one, and then number two, the purpose that we now have in this life to let everyone know that we don't have to stay in our sin. We don't have to wallow around in it. Uh, we don't have to try to get better. We have to give ourselves to Jesus. He will change us. He will transform us. He will make us new. He will clean us from the inside out. He will give us new life and eternal life, and we will be with Him forever. And it's because of what He did and what we just read about. So let's thank Him today. Let's look to Him today. Let's give ourselves freshly to Him today. Let's carry His good news today for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. Father, we do thank You today that as we read about what Jesus went through on our behalf, we realize that You love us more than we could ever comprehend. And so I pray, God, that You would give us a great gratitude, thanksgiving, and that would equal a lifestyle that is completely laid down. I pray today that our surrender to you would be greater than it was yesterday. And that as we read this story, we realize it was a true account of what the Son of God went through for us. And that the whole way through, he's telling us that he loves us. There's no greater I love you than seeing what you have done for us. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you today. And we pray that we would live in such gratitude that our, our lives would be surrendered. Our mouth would praise you and give thanksgiving. Our, our, our hearts would be devoted to your purpose and your ministry. We would be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the very power of God unto salvation. So we thank you for our salvation. Restore to us the joy of our salvation today. So help us to see Jesus in everything that we say and do. Help us to share Jesus in everything that we say and do. We want to bring you glory, and we thank you that we have another day to do that today. And we thank you today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.